As you know, we started a series last week entitled Being in Christ. And last week, I started talking to you about things that require some change in our lives, some foundational things. And this week, we're going to talk about chapter 2 in the book of Thessalonians. And we're going to be talking about doing things. And when I think of things of, uh, that will last, I, I think of my priorities in life. And Ray Kroc, I don't know if you know, recall his name or if you guys know who he is, but he is the founder of McDonald's. His priorities in life. And this is what he said. He said, I believe in God. I believe in family, and I believe in McDonald's. He added, but with order. Now, unfortunately, that's some of us, that our priorities change depending on our situation. And oftentimes what that means is that we end up putting God on a little shelf, a shelf where we could just bring him down whenever we need something or whenever we uh, need to pray to him. It's kind of this mentality that it's kind of out of sight, out of mind mentality. Your priority in life depends on who you are and where you are. Everyone, you and I, have priorities in life, but some priorities are not good in the odd. It reminds me of the late George Carlin. He wrote called The Paradox, um, and I took a few pieces of it, and, and he writes, the paradox, the paradox of our time in history is that we have shorter tempers, wider freeways, but narrower viewpoints. We spend more, but less. We buy more, but enjoy less. We have bigger houses and smaller families. More convenience, less time. More degrees, but less sense. More medicine, but less wellness. We drink too much, smoke too much, spend too much, laugh too little, drive too fast, get too angry, stay up too late, get up too tired, read too little, watch TV too much, and pray too seldom. We've been all the but we have trouble crossing the street to meet a new neighbor. We build more computers to hold more information to produce copies than ever. We communicate less and less. You know, I don't know about you, but these are some pretty... They challenge me. They help me to my priorities. It's, it, it's somewhat of a checkup. You know, a checkup, you know, when you guys go to the doctor a year, the doctor tells you they should go and get a checkup. And even companies check up yearly reviews, right? Now, checkups are a good thing. We don't always like what they have to say, but they're, they're definitely a good thing. I mean, every time I go to the doctor, I never, hey, Carlos, you have the greatest blood pressure I've ever seen. I, I've never heard that once. Instead, it's always like, you need to eat better, you need to do more exercise, you need to lower your cholesterol, and you need to get a prostate exam. And I'm like, I'm not ready for that. We'll see you next year. You know, it's just, that's just the way it goes with doctors sometimes. The question being all the times as believers is, are really building our lives on the things that last? Meaning, do we have the right priorities? The Bible tells us that that is an extremely important. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul paints a picture for us. And let me summarize it for you. It says, here's how it's going to be at the end of time. Here's how it's going to be when you die. You're going to, go to, you're going to be with God. And the things that you do on this earth is going to be like wood, hay, and straw. It's going to get burned up. In fact, I encourage you guys to, after this or during the week, go read 1 Corinthians chapter 3 so you can know what I'm talking about. It's going to get burned up, meaning it's not going to last. It's going to be like, you know, the story of the three little piggies where that one just blew away because it wasn't built right. And then he says, and some of the things that you do on this earth, they're going to be like gold, silver, and precious stone. They're going to last forever. In people's lives, the praise that they bring to God, the capacity that they build in your life to make a difference for eternity. He says, those are the things that are going to last. So in order for us to have less wood, hay, and straw, and more gold, silver, and precious stone, we need, I think, this year to start with, although we've already started, 
a checkup, a heart checkup? Am I really building into my life the things that will last? Specifically, am I, am I doing the things? Am I spending time with the things that are a priority in my life? The stuff that I'm putting my energy into, are those the things that really, really last? Well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, as we start, the Apostle Paul gives us a, little, a few things that we can base ourselves on this live checkup. And the, right off the bat, one of says, you to you, failure. Now, different translations say, our visit to you was worthwhile, or my favorite, it says, our not ending. The work that he did in Thessalonica was effective, he says. The question is, how can I live a life that is not in vain? Now, if you remember, this letter was written to the Thessalonians. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy had stayed there for a period of time. And then they were forced out of the area. And last week, I told you more about the city of Thessalonica. You know, the people there and how the city was. But this week, I want to tell you as to Paul, why Paul wrote this letter in the first place. Now, in the ancient world, there was a lot of uh, what I would call or um, wandering philosophers or traveling salesmen. You know, people are mainly men who travel from town to town and offer the latest teaching. Now, some of them sincerely believed and they were saying snake oil salesmen, you know, fast steadies. They were just trying to trick people into making a few bucks. And it's kind of like the reputation that some televangelists have today. And this is what Paul's enemies were most likely accusing him of. They argued that he came into town, he spoke flattering words, you know, eloquent words, and that he was seeking glory, fortune, and fame. And then they tried to prove their point by saying, you know what, he, he even left in the middle of the night. You know, these people were slandering Paul, and they were defaming him and accusing him of being this shady character who left to save his own skin. So what Paul does in this first letter to the Thessalonians is he tries to answer all these false claims against him. That is why when you read this, if, you, if you've read this, and I encourage you guys to go read all of 1 Thessalonians because it's only five chapters, so you guys should do that. So he says why it's when you guys are reading that he's trying to justify himself or excuse himself. But you know, Paul was not trying to make himself out to be something big. His fear, his real fear was that all the talk about town was causing these people from the, the church of Thessalonians to falter and stumble in their new faith. You see, Paul, as we heard about last week, knew that he was a steward of the good news. He knew that he had been entrusted with the gospel message. And even though it was demanding and that people were going to say things about him and that he would probably never be a rich man, he said it was the most rewarding thing to him. In fact, Paul himself said, said these words, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs all. For here, beaten, imprisoned, shipwrecked, and now he's being slandered, and he calls it light and momentary troubles. He said, it's but for a moment, but something better, something much better is coming. So Paul took the time to answer these charges against him. And I want to ask you guys this, this morning, just so you guys can try to relate to Paul. He's like, does that sound fair to you? That you would do the right thing and then you get criticized for it? Well, of course it's not, but it's inevitably what happens all the time, right? Because when you build your life on the things that last and you have the right priorities in life, there's always going to be people that are going to come and criticize you for it. There's a lot of things that happen when that takes place like jealousy and people want to copy what you're doing and all people I what you so I want us to consider this morning it's a heart checkup based on Paul words from chapter 2 
and ask yourself, how can I live the Christian life in a way that really lasts? Well, I think the first thing that we need to do if we're going to do that is we need to check our motives. Now, Paul gives us an amazing list of things that we should check. Primarily as it comes to our motivation for doing things, as it relates to God's work or the ministry, but it also gives us insight into everything that we do in life and our priorities in life and, and as to why we do those things in life. Now, here's a scripture that he uses starting in verse 2. He says, We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi. As you know, but with the help of our God, we dare to tell the strong position. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people but God, who test our hearts. You know we use flattery, nor did we ever put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We are not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. <clears throat> he says, for the appeal we make does not spring from what? He says, error or impure motives. We're not trying to trick you. We're not trying to please people. We're not trying to flatter you. We're not trying to put on masks for the other. Now, folks, these are motives that don't last. And these are a few things that we can check on ourselves as well. First, he says, lies do not last. He says, we do not speak from error. You know, if we devote or give ourselves to any lie, it's not going to last. They all eventually come out, and, the, and you guys know that it is exhausting trying to stick with them. It takes more sacrifice and will to stick to a lie than to just say the truth. That is why we need God's word so desperately in our lives, so that we can tell the difference between the truth and the lies in our lives. You know, this book has a truth in it. For me, the book is right here. Normally, there's a Bible, you know, but I don't have that. I have this. It's one of the things that you have to build in your life so that your life can last. And then he says, in pure motives, if you write with the wrong motive, what happens? Does it last? It may last for the person that you're doing it for. I mean, if I, as an example, speak the word of God, but I have the wrong motives in my heart, is it going to last for me? Is it going to bless me? It might help you a little bit, but it's certainly not going to help me. So Paul tells them, I'm not building my life on impure motives. And we should always ask ourselves if what we're doing is for God or is it for ourselves? Whatever you do in life, is it for your success or is it something else that you're doing it for? Then Paul says, we weren't trying to trick you. So trickery doesn't work. If you try to change people's behavior without changing their heart, it never lasts. I mean, Henry, something that you didn't want to do, but as soon as you moved out of the house, you stopped doing it. You know, we use that form of trickery on our kids all the time because it gets them to do things faster, but it doesn't last. And then Paul says, flattery doesn't last. You know, I like people who flatter me, don't you? Don't you like when people say nice things about you? I think we all like that. But think about it for a moment. The problem with flattery, which is a lie, is that it keeps you stuck where you are. When somebody flatters you, they're keeping you stuck where you are. We're not being honest about the changes that could happen or the improvement that happened in your life. That's the danger of it. That's why it never lasts. And then my favorite, Paul says that mass, mass do not save law. You think of mass, we always think of Hollywood pictures, movies, or we think of dramas mainly. 
But those aren't the kind of masks that Christians wear. There's all kinds of masks that are popular with Christians. We have a lot of them. In fact, one of them is called the joy mask. You guys know the joy mask. You know, things are falling apart inside and you're discouraged and life is terrible and maybe you're even depressed and we walk around like nothing's wrong and we put on this happy joy mask. You know, a lot of us put on that mask because we think that Christians are always supposed to be happy. But let me tell you, Paul wasn't always happy. If you read First Corinthians, he talks about the fact that he despaired life at that moment. Jesus wasn't always happy. The Bible tells us that he wept for a friend. Anytime you weep, do you guys? Most of the time, it's because you're despairing something. Joy doesn't mean to paint this smile on our face. to a, you know, another mask that we sometimes carry around is this suffering mask. And I think you guys have seen this on some people. You know, the suffering servant kind of thing where they put on a mask and they're always, oh, woe to me, life is tough, business is bad. And you go through this whole story about how you suffered at work and terrible things are happening in your life and somebody's talking bad about you. And sometimes you look at those people and they, and as they walk into a room, it's almost like they're carrying this whole weather system with them and they just bring you down and everything is gloomy. And then there's this, I got it all figured out mask. You know, you know, we walk around believing, I don't need your help, I got this. Oh, I already know that. No, I've already been there. You know, the, the one-uppers, that kind of a mask. And then Paul said, the, the other motive that you should watch out for, it's probably the most dangerous of all. Seek praise from men. Diflat is something that we seek, not give. Who likes to get praise from people here? Anyone? I know I do. Because it makes us feel good about ourselves. The problem with that is that it can quickly become something that we get used to. Something that we start needing. You start to live a life and you start to do things just because you're looking for that praise. You start to look for that praise. And you know, I say that is probably needing praise from men or from people is probably the most dangerous and addictive drug of them all. I think it's more addictive than any physical drug because it creates monsters. So that's the first thing that we should check as we read Second First um, Thessalonians chapter 2, is we have to check our motives for all the things that we're doing. And then we should check courage. Let me tell you why. Because courage lasts. Look at what Paul says at the beginning of this chapter, verse 2. In the middle of it, he says, As you know, but with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in what? In the face of opposition. Paul knew the opposition. He'd faced, he had faced it in Philippi. They'd thrown him in prison. They'd almost kill him. He knew the strong opposition that was there. And in the face of that, he went ahead and told them the good news. You see, courage is not doing something without understanding the opposition. In fact, a lot of people who are just brave and sometimes dumb or stupid do things that we would think are brave. But they just didn't understand the dangers of it. But in their times. But let me tell you, courage is doing something and being fully aware of the consequences of the opposition. Courage is doing something in the face of opposition, both outside on the physical side of it and on the inside of you, which is where most of us face it today. Because we don't live in a country where there's a lot of outside persecution. I mean, sometimes there's some pressure in the job that can come with some job situations. But the truth is that the opposition that you feel or that I feel and we feel comes from the inside of us. You know, the temptation to do the wrong thing 
or not to do the right thing. That's the kind of struggles that we face all the time. And courage is doing something in the face of that. And all faith are the ones when you, when you need to say something that's really hard to say, but you know you need to say it to that person. It takes courage to do that because they may reject you. They may not want to be your friend. They may talk bad about you. They may not listen to you. Basically, it may not go well. So it takes courage to say and do the right things. Ray Steadman in his commentary of 1 Thessalonians wrote this about courage. Now, he's talking about himself. He says, by nature, I'm a devout word. The few times in my life that I've shown courage were simply the grace of God at work. And I think that's probably true of more of us than we'd like to admit. We all would like to think that we're courageous people in every situation. And, and when it gets tough, we're going to step right into the right thing. Truth is that we all need the grace of God at work in our lives so that we can have the courage to do the right thing. That was the secret to Paul's effectiveness. It was that he had the courage to last. He wouldn't give up. He dared to tell the truth of the gospel, although the last time he had done it, he had been punished for it. He had courage. He refused to quit. Those are the things that last. Folks, had that been me? And think about it for yourself. Someone criticizes your work or slanders your good intentions or tries to hurt you at work for the work that you're doing. What would you do? For me, I'd probably run and hide or I don't know what I would do, but this doesn't sound pleasant at all to carry out the Lord's message. And then Paul says, I have two things that I know will last forever that you should make note of. He says the last, the gospel. Like when you read this chapter in verse 2 and verse 4 and verse 8, Paul says the gospel of God, and he keeps mentioning the gospel of God. And we should make note of that because you won't find that concise, exact terminology in the rest of the New Testament. And Paul uses it three times in a single passage. Now, we talked about last week about ringing out the Lord's message. Now, if we don't share the good news, it's not going to get shared. Because God put it into your hands and my hands to share. He's entrusted it to the church. And we learned last week that you are the church. He entrusted it to us. So Paul says that that is the things that will last. And then he says, pleasing God last. Paul, instead of living to please people like we just talked about, lived to please God. In fact, you were these God. You know, with these beautiful songs this morning about how we can please God and think of 10,000 reasons as to why we should be thankful and to praise Him and to seek Him. The bottom line is this, that if we are not living a life to please God, then you have to ask yourself, who are you living to please? You're, you're pleasing somebody. It's either your spouse or your coworkers or your jobs. But the bottom line is you're, we're always living to please something or somebody. So if it's not God, who is it in your lives? And then Paul says we, we have to check our, our motives. We have to check our courage. And then third, we have to check our witness. Now, let me explain this one to you. In our world, a witness is someone who testifies in a trial, right? And it's usually on behalf of someone else, and they basically testify. And then they're trying to find holes in their stories, inconsistency, the wrong motives, etc. I think we all can relate to that. Well, Paul says in verse 10, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Now, ask yourself, how are we to teach someone the gospel if we are bad witnesses? 
our non-Christian friends, our family, our neighbors, our co-workers, they're all watching us to see if what we believe is what we profess. In a sense, they're kind of cross-examining us, and if we're not real, they don't want any part of us, and certainly are not going to want any part of our God. So how can you show a friend the importance of worshiping God if you are regularly absent from the worship service on Sunday? It's about love and the mercy of God when you refuse to forgive another for the offense they committed against you. That's a bad witness. We can't. It doesn't matter how true our witness is. If we're not striving to live like Jesus, we're not going to bring people to him. A Gallup poll reported this some years ago. Take a listen. He says, there is little difference in ethical behavior between the church and the unchurched. There is a much pilferage and dishonesty among the church as the unchurched. Religion, per se, it's not really life-changing. Ouch. That hurts. Paul knew that his life had to correspond with his witness and teaching. Now, Whedon isn't perfect. If you read when you were just like the rest of us. Dwight Moody said that a holy life will make the deepest impression. Lighthouses, he said, blow no horns. They just shine. You know, a teacher was checking her student's knowledge of Proverbs. Cleanliness is next to what she asked. And a small boy, little boy replied with real strong feeling, impossible. Well, that's kind of how I feel sometimes, don't you? That you're trying to do the right thing for God and it sometimes feels impossible. You see, I don't want to be a stumbling block for anyone in their faith. Could you guys imagine if somebody walked through those doors, they see me in the pulpit and they turn around and go back out? Because maybe outside I'm a, I'm a different person. Or maybe outside I'm not the real witness that I'm supposed to be that I profess. Always help me to see my surroundings. I'm careful not to cut people off. I'm careful not to be rude to people who provide a service, especially when it's bad. But I struggle with that same things that everybody else. I mean, don't you guys want to punch people who cut you off? I do. You know, but just when you think that holiness, righteousness, and blameless is impossible, Paul reminds us that we possess the spirit of Christ. We may not be clean, but we can become cleaner as time goes by. Blamelessness should be the goal in life, but not perfection. We'll never reach perfection, but blamelessness is possible. Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, blamelessness. On the one hand, there's no way we will come outside because of sin, but on the other hand, we already are blameless because of Jesus Christ in our lives. So we should strive for blamelessness, and there's only one way to do that. Christ, his word, his spirit who lives within, and as we study and we pray and we yield to his word and we surrender, he will make us a, a better people. He will make us more spiritual and kinder and gentler and pure. Now, I don't know about you, but when I listen to this message, I, and I was preparing for this message, I see all the things that are wrong. And it's so natural for all of us to just look at something and look at what's wrong with it. And I think sometimes that's what the Bible, what we hold to the Bible is that it's always just pointing out that are, that are wrong in our lives and the things that we should do better. And, it, and it's depressing. Who's going to measure up to Paul? I know I'm not. But the beauty of Paul's letters is that he always tells us what to do about it. 
If we did any part of these priority things or doing the things that will last, change that, guys. When you keep reading, he says, you care, you love, you encourage, you comfort, and you urge people to love lives, to live lives worthy of God. That becomes our priority. When we take all the things that we know we're not doing well, and we turn it into just caring for people in such a way, that's how we start to turn things around. First, Paul says that it starts with our actions. Now, read this verse, start verse 9 with me. He says, as apostles of Christ, we could turn to you, but we were gentle among you like they're caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but all our lives as well because of, because we come to us. We would be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. He says, we made a different choice. We chose to act in a way that made an impact on the world. So it starts with our actions. If we want to turn this around, we have to act, not just stand idle. Second, he says, you have to care for people. He says, as a mother would care for her little children. You care for people, actions of care, gently, he says, as a mother would care for her children. You know, we talked about that last week and the great analogy that Paul uses so that we can understand how we do that, relate to being parents. Third, he says, you love people. He says, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. So then who is it that you and I can love in a way that lasts? I think that needs to be the heartbeat question in your life and my life. That question of love is, what is my attitude, my attitude towards the fact that other people have needs? I mean, how dare they have needs? But what is my attitude about the people who have needs just like I have needs? Then Paul tells us in verse 11 what we should do about actions. He says, for you and we each of you as a father, and there's that analogy again, there's that example that we can all relate to. As a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, calls you into his kingdom and glory. What a great example. In verse 7, he uses mother, and in this verse, he uses fathers. We can all relate to being parents. And if you're not a parent here this morning, then you have parents. So we can all relate to what he is saying. Now, as parents, how do you care and love for your children? Was there ever a time at three in the morning when your baby woke up and you had to go feed the baby because that guy wasn't doing it? Did you ever think, my baby woke up at three in the morning? How cool is that, man? I'm so excited. How long did that last? The emotion and the action aren't always attached. But you for your How about when you're out in a pool and they're out and you tell them not to get into the water or the mud and they do it anyway and now it's time to get in the car so you have to clean them up and take their, you know, change their clothes and all this stuff that you have to do. Were you happy about that? Did you send them to school the next day naked just so you can teach them a lesson? I hope most of you guys didn't, by the way, but no, you still wash their clothes and then you urge them not to do it again in a very polite and nice manner, I'm sure. Because that's part of care, discipline. How about when your teenager comes home late? Should I even talk about this? And you've been waiting for them really late, and they're so home so late, and it's way past their curfew. Let's call it 2 a.m. just to be nice. But let's say they get there. you happy? Did you want anything to do with that kid at that point? But what did you do? You had to sit down here and talk to them about the importance of making the right decisions. You encourage them to make decisions. 
You comfort them telling them, man, you know, if you do this, this is going to happen and vice versa. And then you urge them, right? You said, if you do this again, buddy, or maybe it is a second time, that's what we do as parents. That's what Paul is telling us to do. You know, if we're going to finish this race of life strong, we have to do some hard checks. We have to check our priorities. We have to check our motives and our courage and mainly our witness. We have to look at our actions and include loving and caring for people and encouraging and comforting and urging people. Tom Landry, former coach of the Dallas Cowboys. By the way, congratulations to you Packer fans. I hate you guys right now, but that's okay. This is what he said. The thrill of knowing Jesus is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I think God has put me in a very special place, and he expects me to use it to his glory in everything that I do. Whether coaching football or talking to the press, I'm always a Christian. Christ is first, family second, and football is third. Folks, as we start this year, I know we've been talking about all these resolutions and all the things that we can do. I think it's important to check our heart as it comes to, as it relates to what we're doing for God and other people. You know, at the end of our lives, you're going to notice that. And what we see, Pastor Larry and I see time and time again on people's deathbeds when we pray for them is that they never ask for their medals. Like, bring me all my medals that I won. They never asked for the degrees that were up on the wall in their office. They never asked, hey, hey, bring me a, a picture of the house that I worked so hard to build. You know, that big house. That, they never asked for that. The stories that they tell you at the end of their life all have to do with people. The impact that they made for their family or their family made on them. It all has to do with the things that they did that they remember because they were trying to live a life that was worthy of God. So I want to end this morning just by having you contemplate what will your priorities look like for the rest of this year? Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we are so delighted with you this morning for we know that your word speaks truth into our lives. Father, and as we stand before here, before you, Lord, we know that maybe there's a little bit of change that needs to happen in our hearts in order for us to change some of our priorities, in order for our priorities to reflect the type of things that would last. Lord, so we just want to pray right now that you give us the will and, and, and the ability to live a life that lasts. We ask that you would just bring your Holy Spirit and that it will empower us to live for you and you first and foremost. Lord, I'm asking for your strength for everyone in this room so that they could get headed in the right direction. Lord, and if we need to make some changes in our life, the courage to make those changes in spite of the opposition. Lord, I, we don't want to be stubborn and keep doing the things that we know are not going to last. Lord, so we're asking for your strength to start taking the steps in the right direction. Lord, we don't expect to be perfect, but with you, all things are possible. Lord, so we pray together that you would help us that you would strengthen us, and that you would encourage us. Lord, we love you this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.